From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Tuesday, October the 13th, 2020, and uh, we have a good show lined up for you today. Dan Richardson, uh, a frequent legal analyst on the Dave Graham Show, also a Vermont based attorney and the uh, former president of the Vermont Bar Association will be joining us to talk to us a little bit about the uh, ongoing hearings on the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett by President Trump to the United States Supreme Court. We'll be uh, joining Dan in just a few minutes to talk about all that. And then in the uh, latter hour of the program, we have uh, Matt Barowitz and Carolyn Weir joining us. Matt is with the State Department of Labor. Carolyn is with the McClure Foundation. And they are mounting a campaign to notify folks that uh, there are actually a lot of jobs available in the Vermont job market right now. There's a uh, quite a spate of unemployment going on related to the coronavirus, but uh, there are jobs out there. They are they've got a list and uh, of jobs that are there now and expected to be appearing over the next ten years. And and they have some suggestions for what kinds of training people might want to be getting in order to be uh, uh, really strong in the employment market in the years to come. So that'll be a good conversation in between all that right after the top of the show break the top of the hour break at 10 i should say we're going to be talking with thane rosenbaum of cbs news uh want to ask him a couple questions about this uh, court packing allegation that uh that the Republicans are lobbying against uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, so we'll talk about that uh, just at that uh, mid-show CBS News uh, one-on-one interview that we'd like to do. Let's get right into it with uh, Dan Richardson. He uh, joins us on the phone this morning. And, uh, Dan, good morning. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you, Dave, for having me. And uh, so the first day of the hearings was yesterday. Uh, everybody just sort of staking out their positions, opening statements by uh, the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as well as uh, as well as Ms. Barrett. And uh, what any anything jump out at you as uh, being particularly noteworthy about all that yesterday? Um, not really. I mean, it, if anything, I think the major theme was predictability. Um, you know, each of the senators uh, essentially staked out a position um, of not unexpected uh, source. I think Lindsey Graham uh, may have put it best in that uh, he said he didn't expect these hearings to change anybody's mind. Um, so in some ways, this is a little bit of political theater in that the Republicans have made up their mind that they are going to vote for this nominee. Um, the Democrats mm-hmm. have voted, have decided that they are not, um, you know, and a lot of it is just simply making sure that um, there are no big gaps on on either side, uh, I would anticipate. So, you know, as far as substance goes, I, I don't think we saw a lot of it yesterday. Um, you know, it, it, maybe another point that that's kind of, kind of out there is, um, you know, there was some hand-wringing from uh, some of the Republicans. Ben Sass, um, the senator from Nebraska, um, had a bit of a a speech about court packing. Um, You know, this hearing and this nomination are really uh, a function of power. And um, I, I think it's, you know, certainly Sass was called out for a little bit of of hypocrisy, the idea that um, you know the the norms and comedies that that had 
governed uh, court appointments to this point, and and his speech was really about, you know, that the Democrats were going far afield on that. You know, I I think that may not be as grounded, um, given that this is really an exercise in Republican power um, to have this nomination in these hearings, despite what Republicans said four years ago, which was, you know, that we shouldn't be doing Supreme Court nominations in an election year um, and letting instead the people have a voice on who composes the presidency and the Senate. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I, I think there's a certain amount, an undercurrent of resignation on the, the Democrat side that uh, this is a nomination that is likely to go through um, simply because there are no procedural levers to necessarily stop it. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Uh, you mentioned court packing, and I'm uh, uh, going to be talking about it a little bit later with Thane Rosenbaum, CBS News. I'll be interested to get his thoughts. But uh, Joe Biden, of course, has been getting some questions about this on the trail. He had a question about it from, a, I think, a radio or TV station in, uh, in uh, Cincinnati yesterday. And uh, he said basically he doesn't like court packing, but he refused to sort of uh, forswear it or renounce it or whatever and say he definitely would not do it. And uh, I think he'd be within his rights to say, uh, we don't like court packing. We would only consider such a thing if if Republicans were to actually uh, deny the uh, hearing to Merrick Garland in 2016 with nine months to go in a presidential term and then turn around and rush through a, a nomination of Amy Coney Barrett in uh, 2020. Uh, in, in a couple of months, uh, you know, we would only consider court packing if they were to do something that heinous, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, sure. And I think he'd, well, he he would sort of turn the spotlight around on on the Republicans and what they're doing, and uh, that might be a, a healthy thing for him. I don't know. Sure. I think there's two points to to, to sort of draw out of that, and what, one is that um, you know the idea of judicial appointments. Um, and I've said this for a while, um, seems to be much more, at least at the federal level, much more a game that um, enthuses Republican voters and um, Republican politics. I think they have a very, that's a very strong um, drive for Republican voters. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense that it's the same on the Democratic side. So the idea of court packing you know, may seem uh, like a appropriate tit for tat, but I don't think it's going to necessarily galvanize the um, the Democratic side of the uh, the voter equation the same way it would uh, possibly in a Republican side. Um, but the the second thing is is that you know the last time historically we seriously as a country talked about core packing really goes back to FDR and, and the New Deal. And uh, Roosevelt coming off of a re-election where he was, um, you know, uh, re-elected by a pretty substantial margin, um, felt he had political capital, and he was facing a Supreme Court that was actively hostile um, to his uh, legislative and executive agenda. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I think I could see down the road where court packing would become a topic if. And, and this would be a little bit of a hypothetical sort of drawing it out, but if if Biden wins, and if Biden's win really represents a sort of uh, uh, shift towards uh, democratic politics on the national level with uh, sort of a generational shift or um, whatever demographic shifts that we see, 
that Democrats keep a majority and keep getting elected as a majority, um, and the court continues to its rightward move and begins actively striking down Democratic um, agenda. And I think that's the, the, the strategy in some respects, what this, this hearing is playing out, is they're focusing on um, Obamacare, the ACA, um, because that is threatened um, with the, the current appeal that uh, Barrett, if confirmed, would likely sit on and, and be an active participant in. And that's, that's mm-hmm. an area where, um, you know, Republican-appointed judges or have sought to strike down a, a piece of very popular legislation um, on, on what they would deem originalist terms. Um, and they have sought to, to remove, remove that. And so if, if you see things like that, I could see court packing becoming more palatable or at least more widely discussed um, in Democratic circles as a reality if, if, in fact, the court started actively striking that down. And that would mirror what FDR did because FDR threatened it. Um, and as a result, um, he, he, of course, didn't increase the number on the court, but he effectively, um, you know, I think put political pressure on the court. He had a, a few retirements and a couple of switches and votes that um, saved the bulk of the New Deal um, and changed the direction of the court away from what they call the Lochner era towards the, the more modern era of Supreme Court jurisprudence. Yeah, that that is uh, something that, I mean, so the court packing back then was just threatened. It was never actually carried out, from what I gather. Correct, although, you know, the the key, of course, is that, you know, the Constitution doesn't mandate that there be nine justices. And throughout the right. history of the Supreme Court, the, the numbers have fluctuated um, uh, going up and down. But, um, you know, that's, it, it's certainly a possibility. Another possibility, I think, that's a bit more realistic that's been floated is the idea of expanding the Federal Court of Appeals bench uh, under a Democratic administration. And there's some justification to that uh, from a workload standpoint, which is that the number of Federal Court Appeals judges has not changed since uh, the Carter administration. Uh, but the caseload has increased. So uh, Federal Court Appeals judges are working um, more and harder than they did in the past, um, and it, there's some justification to have more judges to have those cases processed through um, either quicker or to have more hands to, to deal with the work. Could that workload issue be used as a justification for expanding the Supreme Court at some point? That's, yes, that's actually a possibility. There's, a, there's an interesting argument out there that um, you know some of the work of the Supreme Court it is just time consuming the research the amount of time that they have to um to sort of mull these cases over and come to decisions um either way you know these are not quick overnight decisions these these take a lot of work and if you had more justices you would obviously have more more hands uh working on these these cases uh to develop them and you know i was reading an article the other day that was talking about the way in which some of the cases before used to actually take, um, you know, when uh, William Howard Taft was Chief Justice, uh, there was a case that took three years to, to go to hmm. get through the court. Um, and it was a good decision. It just took time for the court to sort of 
mull it over to work it through uh, and untangle some of the complicated issues. Um, so certainly, if you had more justices, I think it would be, um, you know, could be justified on a, a workload basis. Um, but, hmm. you know, I don't think anybody would be fooled if either a Democratic or Republican administration um, would would propose this, that there would be an element of politics <laughs> to it. These poor overworked justices, they need some more help. Exactly. So. <laughs> you know, neither side, neither side has had particular <clears throat> sympathy for the overworking of the judiciary when it has served political ends. You know, Republicans for a number of years um, kept vacancies open, which meant that the existing judges had more work on their plate just simply so mm-hmm. that they could have uh, the opportunity to make those appointments. And uh, the Democrats have largely... Um, you know, not made this a priority and have kept vacancies open. Certainly in the beginning of the Obama administration, there was no rush to fulfill fill judicial vacancies. Um, there was a sort of deliberative and timely approach, which if you were a working court judge and you had the Chief Justice Roberts saying, we need more judges, um, the Democrats weren't exactly rushing to fill the, the gap either. We have a listener checking in with us. Ziggy from Newport's on the line. Good morning, Ziggy. I got disconnected. Oh, okay. I thought I got disconnected. I'm sorry. Nope. You're on the air. Uh, talk What's going on, Ziggy? About- oh, well, okay. I'm sorry, sorry for the rough start here. Uh, talking about Biden and Harris and, and, and stacking the courts and mm-hmm. both of them refusing to answer that question. Now, yep. uh, my question to you, Dave, is... Uh, well, you mentioned one thing that Biden had said about stacking the court, saying that he's not for it. I've heard I've heard him say just the past couple of days that the American folks don't have a right to know. I've heard him say that, and I also heard him uh, and I and and something else. Any, anyways, he he hasn't been answering a question. How would you how how would you and feel about when Barrett is asked how she would vote about a certain thing in this in these hearings, mm-hmm. and she her answer would be, "I'll tell you after I'm uh, in confirmed. there." Uh, uh, yeah. Confirmed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and, yeah. and then a, a little feedback from you too, because uh, from the legalese standpoint, because you know that was never brought up in the past where a judge up well, for confirmation would, would would be asked how they would vote for any anything like that, but it seems to be more and more normal now. Yeah, um, well <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you what she would say, what she will say all week in these hearings. I wish is she that, would say that, really I wish she would. I'll tell you after I'm confirmed. Uh, that's what that's basically what she's going to say that's what they all say and uh um and and that's what uh that's what's been going on in these nominations for a long time would would you agree dan or am i am i a little bit uh, wrong about that yeah i mean it's a little bit of the the dance you know there is a a, a real ethical dilemma for judges or putative judges um to testify or to start expressing opinions about particular cases um, in public hearings because um, there is the in part the idea of bias and 
the idea that they would create a recusal issue just simply by expressing an opinion about a live and active case. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's expanded. That's, that's actually a fairly narrow scope. So, for example, if there's, um, you know, uh, Smith versus Jones that's pending and about to come before the Supreme Court, um, and Barrett would be one of the judges that would hear it, if she started expressing opinions about Smith v. Jones uh, and the merits of it or the issues or some of those uh, questions that she, she might have about the case or, or preconceived ideas, that, that would violate uh, an ethical standard in that she would be talking about a case, uh, effectively ex parte, that she would be hearing. Um, and so there is, there is a legitimate issue about that that doesn't exist for other types of appointments, say, in the executive branch. Um, but beyond that, it's become a little bit of a game of dancing on the head of a pin to say, well, you know, I have an open mind about these things. When, you know, when you talk about some of these broad issues or concepts, there's no Supreme Court nominee in, in the past 30 years or 40 years that has come on the court without a preconception about what they believe in either you know, think about a case like Roe v. Wade um, that they clearly have preconceptions about. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll vote a particular way necessarily, but yep. because those are the individual postures of those cases. And I think there was a good example this spring where you had, you know, the, the Chief Justice Roberts voting down um, the Louisiana abortion case, not necessarily because he, he believes, and in fact, he voted. Um, he, he, he voted in the opposite direction in a Texas case, but because the Louisiana case came on the heels of the Texas case and followed so closely within its shadow, his belief in stare decisis um, overruled that. So, you know, it, it, it does get a little bit complicated, but I agree that, you know, there is, and that's the political theater of this, right? Is that, and by the way, for um, those who, <laughs> uh, stare decisis, I believe, is sort of a, the, the idea that uh, we already ruled on this and we ought to let our prior ruling stand just so people don't uh, get a neck cramp from <laughs> Turning their head back and forth, watching us uh, <laughs> rule on cases or something like that, That's right? right. That's right. Uh, okay, so the, uh, the respect for precedent, I think that's the better way to put it, yeah. Um, okay, so it, Amy Coney Barrett is reported as of late last week to have signed on to a newspaper ad a few years back in which uh, the uh, Roe versus Wade decision was labeled barbaric. Uh, is that is that a uh, a tipping of the hand which uh, creates a problem for her? Well, I don't think it creates a problem for her uh, because I think uh, the Republican majority is likely to to, to support that position mm-hmm. as well. Um, yep. But I think there's two things that you have to untangle from that. Is is one is what I was just saying is that I, I you know that doesn't mean she's going to immediately get on court and vote down. Uh, Roe v. Wade, or seek to seek to undo it. Um, yeah. I think that would be over, overly simplistic, and, and in some ways unfair to her um, judicial philosophy. Um, but secondly, um, you know, I think that uh, you know this again is the is the dilemma of what we face when we're asking or talking about these judges to in these confirmation hearings, which is. You know, their private opinions may or may not be part of how they make decisions about cases. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, I, 
picking out some some easy examples, but there was um, there was an interesting case in that William Rehnquist, when he was uh, Chief Justice, was no fan of Miranda versus Arizona. He mm-hmm. did not jive with what he believed was a requirement for what police should do. But when there was an opportunity to overrule it, he voted. Uh, he he supported its continuation and uh, and affirmed it. Um, not because he necessarily believed in it, but because it's become so ingrained into our culture and into our understanding of what our rights are that to remove it would um, it, it would be all but impossible. Um, and, and he, so he might have wa- he might have wanted to overturn it, but he had the right to remain silent. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> Trying to be funny. Um, so. I guess the the real upshot here is that you, even though the signs are strong <laughs> that a justice might uh, point in one direction, uh, and, and the president has said he will not appoint anybody to the Supreme Court who uh, does not oppose Roe versus Wade and, and who would not overturn it. So there's a little bit of a tip of the hand, <laughs> but uh, sure. this is um, certainly something which I think that I think some of the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee might have some questions about that uh, particular newspaper ad and uh, I mean do you think they'll be within right and reason to ask them sure I think they absolutely would you know the question is what kind of judge or justice um, Amy Coney Barrett will become uh, and that's and that's really what the these hearings, if we think about them having any substance or meaning, really should get to. Um, and I think that's a legitimate question. Is, is Barrett one of those people who will um, follow her own personal predilections, or does she have an actual judicial philosophy that, well, that is in line with what we want? Uh, let's talk more about it after the break. we got to hear some CBS News at the bottom of the hour and a couple words from our sponsors. We'll be back and continue our conversation with Dan Richardson in just a couple minutes, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guest is Dan Richardson, legal analyst on the Dave Graham Show. The phone numbers are 244-1777 if you're in the local Waterbury area or uh, 1-877-291-8255 if you're a bit farther away. And uh, we have a couple of, I think at least one uh, one caller on the line. Um, let's go to... Um, Oh, now I'm blanking on the name. I should have written it down, and uh, the folks in the booth very kindly. Uh, Michael from Barrytown. There we go. Good morning, Michael. <laughs> Michael, you there? Oh, I, I, I didn't hear anything, Dave. I didn't realize you were there. Yep. Uh, yeah, I have a, a question for Dan. Mm-hmm. I was watching a news clip of Mitch McConnell on Fox bragging about how Obama was not able to get over a hundred judgeships that would be in the district court or federal court of appeals 
because McConnell held them up. Now, I've done a little bit of research, and it seems that if if Biden were to become president and the Dems take the House and the Senate, that they could remove Barrett, if she's confirmed, from the Supreme Court, and for that matter, anyone else, as long as they gave him a position on the district court or court of appeals. They can't take the lifetime tenure away, but they are able to relocate them from the Supreme Court. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing what Dan might think about that, given the fact that the Republicans seem to have literally hijacked a number of uh, seats here. Dan, your thoughts? Sure. Um, I'm not familiar with, um, nor have I ever heard of a, Supreme Court justice being effectively reassigned uh, to a court of appeals. Um, I do not believe that that would necessarily be possible. Um, it, it's kind of interesting in that every Supreme Court justice is a, is assigned to a court of appeals um, and sometimes will sit on court of appeal cases. Um, that's more from the administrative side of the job. Um, but I don't believe that they would be allowed to be removed and effectively put, you know, demoted to a district court or court of appeals. Um, you know, there are cases where justices have resigned um, and have effectively given up their seats. Um, a, uh, at the end of the Johnson administration, Abe Fortas um, most famously um, resigned his seat. Uh, prematurely and gave Nixon, when he won the 68 election, the opportunity to make appointments. Um, so I don't think that that would necessarily be a, a, a possible avenue. Uh, once the Supreme Court justices or any court uh, judge is appointed, the, the only real possibility is to remove them uh, through the impeachment process, which has been, as you might expect, very limited um, in the history of the United States. Um, that said, you know, I think that is actually an interesting question for any type of Democratic partisan um, who is looking to um, police the courts, as it were, because we have a number of new judges. And, you know, one, I think, fair criticism of, of this push to appoint a lot of judges to the court through the Trump administration and the Republican Senate is that there have been a number of judges that have been uh, deemed unqualified by the American Bar Association or other groups um, that, you know, are generally nonpartisan. Um, but, uh, you know, that's going to be a, a big question because a lot of a judge or justice's job is, is not the high profile cases. The Roe v. Wade's are once in a generation cases. Much more of their caseload is about some of the more mundane day-to-day type of cases. And so on the district and uh, federal court of appeals, you have a number of judges who have very limited courtroom experience. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see how how well they do. Now, I I should clarify that by saying, you know, there's a lot of very, very smart people that whether they have trial court experience or not are certainly capable of doing it. Um, And they certainly, in the federal system, you have so many resources uh, in the form of clerks and staff attorneys to um, help you that they're not on their own. But it would certainly be something that would be interesting to see 
outside of the, the sort of limelight of the uh, high-profile cases to see how some of these court appointees function on more of the bread-and-butter cases. Um, and I could see some of them perhaps not functioning as, as well because they don't have the background or training or experience um, and struggling in those positions and um, having frustrated bars, having to deal with, with judges um, that may lack some of those qualifications and that being a route or an avenue if, if there's a, in the partisan game uh, to seek some sort of pushback on some of these judicial appointments. Michael, does that answer your question? I think Michael may have departed already. Okay. Uh, Dan, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, my understanding of the Constitution is that it calls for the Senate to advise and consent on appointments to the courts. And uh, it doesn't sound like, um, I mean, if, if that's a duty on the part of the Senate, it doesn't sound like uh, Mitch McConnell uh, really uh, stepped up and performed that duty in many, many instances, including in the case of uh, Merrick Garland, just uh, sort of the headline case here. Um is he impeachable for for basically shirking his duty, his constitutional duty? Um, no, the members of Congress are not impeachable the way the president is, or members of the judiciary are. Um, he's ultimately responsive to, to the voters. He can be censured um, by the Senate, but I, I strongly suspect that will not happen. There certainly has been uh, a, a fair amount of game playing. Um, and Mitch McConnell has has played the game very well. You know, it, one of the things I think we've talked about before is that you know his gambits would look foolish if this if we were in this, the fourth year of a Hillary Clinton administration, um, because his holding up the judicial nominations would at some point look very obstructionist and would likely fail and um, you know push the. Uh, administration uh, away from that, but he, you know, he he bet big and and won big on these holding up these judicial appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this actually goes to an interesting point to tie it back into Barrett's nomination about the question of originalism. You know, the words of the Constitution are advice and consent. Well, what does that yep. mean? Does, uh, and. And that's an ambiguous statement because there is no fixed definition of it. And at different times in our history, advice and consent have meant different things. <clears throat> so, you know, right now, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell takes the words of advice and consent really as a, a tool for working partisan um, political ends, which is mm-hmm. if it's a Republican president, advise and consent means red carpet. Um, if it's a Democratic president, um, advice and consent means a red stop sign, um, both of which are red. <laughs> yeah. And he can say, I'm consistently red um, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on what I do. It's just, but that's, you know, and that, that gets into the trickiness of how do we interpret the Constitution? Um, because, you know, a lot of what we do with our jurisprudence when we talk about things like originalism and what is the intent of the founders um, is a very difficult thing to decide because in some cases the, the, the founders didn't have a particular um, vision. Or if they had a vision, it was a conflicting vision. Or if the vision that they had, it doesn't comport with the realities of modern politics. Um, and you, you see that again and again. 
Um, and so advise and consent really is one of those terms that doesn't have a fixed or nailed down definition. So, you know, certainly if you feel like you're on the losing end of that, you can feel like the advise and consent is being abused and misused by someone like Mitch McConnell. And if you're on the side that likes what Mitch McConnell's doing, you can, you can say, well, you know, this is, this is what the founders intended is that this is, this is responsive politics, which is an elected official using his elected position to make sure that his, um, the people that keep electing him and his views are supported and, and entrenched into the political system. Just before the break, we were talking about um, a judge not wanting to tip her or his hand uh, before assuming uh, the robes, and uh, and this is certainly a case of, um, of uh, you know these questions are going to come up in this in this hearing about uh, Amy Coney Barrett this week, and she will uh, undoubtedly dodge them, and that's uh, pretty much what the what people do in this circumstance, but. Um, and then I mentioned, uh, and, and you were saying that the judge might have an ethical problem having tipped her or his hand before assuming the uh, the role of a Supreme Court justice, for instance. Uh, and then I mentioned this newspaper ad in, uh, that called Roe versus Wade barbaric, and, and Amy uh, Coney Barrett signed it as a supporter of this idea, apparently. Um, and basically, I think we, the conclusion we came to is, well, in that case, the ethics don't really matter because there's a Republican majority in the Senate. Did I get that right? Well, it's just that it's, it's not that the ethics, I think separating it out, you know, there's, it, that advertisement is certainly fair game for a question. And, mm-hmm. um, she can't hide behind, or, you know, whether she does or doesn't. It's, it's not an ethical issue for her to answer questions about that advertising. It's not a live controversy. Um, but I anticipate that she will use, as prior nominees have, um, the idea of impartiality and not wanting to show bias um, as a way of being reticent about her answers. Um, but it is, and, and what I guess I was implying was that, uh, you know, to the extent that she does get questions about that, I, I don't think it necessarily matters because um, on this particular issue, um, certainly the majority of the people voting on her would support the position that she took publicly and not see it as a see it as a, uh, a positive rather than a negative. Okay, but, but I mean, still the the issue of a judge tipping her hand in advance of maybe having to rule on something, should she end up recusing herself on cases related to Roe versus Wade? No, not not ethically, because, you know, what was expressed in the in the advertisement was a certain, um, you know, hostility towards the, the decision of Roe v. Wade on personal grounds. And then, you know, a judge, you know, part of this is, you know, a, a judge, someone who becomes a judge, may have written an op-ed and may have said, I like ice cream sundaes. They're the greatest thing ever. Anyone who doesn't eat mm-hmm. an ice cream sundae is a fool. Um, and then they're asked to rule on an ice cream distribution case. Well, that doesn't mean they have to recuse themselves because they like ice cream sundaes. It means that they, um, you know, that, that unless they talked about that particular ice cream manufacturer or have expressed a bias about that, a general predilection towards ice cream sundaes doesn't necessarily create a recusal issue. And, 
you know, that's the same thing I would say with with a lot of these issues about abortion or these hot button topics where, you know, I think it's it's silly to think that we'll have a, a group of people who will be out there who will not have an opinion about one of the hot button topics of our uh, of our time um, or, you know, not be familiar with the case. We wouldn't want someone to be on the Supreme Court who was not intimately familiar with Roe v. Wade or not intimately familiar with some of these issues. And so, you know, to the extent that she's expressed an opinion about them, unless it's something where <clears throat> she said, there's no way as a judge I would ever support Roe v. Wade, no matter what the legal circumstances were, that might be different. Um, but yeah. the, the fact that she expressed an opinion that I personally don't like abortion, I, I don't think that's necessarily grounds for recusal. Now, it may be grounds for disqualification if the, the Democratic Party was the majority in the Senate and they had, um, you know, they, cho- they, they chose to make that one of the issues that they felt they couldn't support somebody who didn't have that type of interpretation. That's that's certainly fine. That's in the Senate's role. but uh, And that's why I simply suggest that as far as she's expressed a personal opinion about it, I don't see that as a uh, game stopper um, or something okay. that would automatically disqualify her. And, uh, Dan, we uh, just have a, a few minutes to go here. Um, I'm wondering if you think that there will be a real marked shift in the coming years on the Supreme Court. Is this the is this going to be the end of the Affordable Care Act? Is this going to be the end of Roe versus Wade? Is this going to be uh, uh, a, a real juggernaut for, um, you know, corporate influence in politics, a la Citizens United, et cetera? Any, any other issues like that coming? Well, I mean, certainly the Affordable Care Act is 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 up for review by the court um, in this coming term. Um, you know, there it, we'll see. Uh, you know, part of this is that there are going to be cases that are going to be developed um, in part as a result of a six-three conservative majority. Uh, the people that might otherwise not take cases will seek to uh, bring those forward with the idea of pushing the law in a certain direction. What's interesting, and I think what what is a real possibility, um, is what one uh, analyst has called third wave originalism, um, really taking hold uh, of the court. Uh, and I'll I'll try and encapsulate this briefly. It's a fairly complicated concept, but the idea is that um, you know, as I referenced, the Lochner era court of the early 20th century uh, was met by a first wave originalism. Uh, that was really an, uh, a liberal uh, wave uh, of originalism. Hugo Black, the justice, being probably the big champion of that, which um, you know sought to uh, push the original purpose of the Constitution forward um, and and stop the court from asserting individual rights at the expense of government functioning. Um, and that was met in by a second wave of originalism. Um, embodied by Scalia and Bork, who pushed back on what they saw as the liberal excesses of the Warren Court um, and and really trying to ground the Constitution in specific texts. And, and what we see emerging in, in some trends um, is third-wave originalism, which is, you know, embodied by Thomas and Gorsuch, that um, there's a subscription to the original meaning of the text to such a degree and, in, and, and um, function that they would be willing to upend um, existing programs. They would be willing to go where Rehnquist wasn't 
um, and get rid of Miranda, no matter how much chaos ensued. Um, and in some ways, returning the court back to the Lochner era, where they were un- upending popularly passed legislative enactments and executive programs um, under the name of either individual rights or um, constitutional limitations. Um, And I think if you have this third wave of originalism that comes forward, it's going to create an interesting situation because in some ways the court becomes very activist in a conservative sense in that they strike down popularly passed laws like the Affordable Care Act. and act as an anti-democratic sort of counterbalance. Uh, and depending, of course, where you come on the political spectrum, that may be either a boo or hurrah, but it would certainly be a direction that the court, this court could possibly go towards um, that in the ensuing years might prove to be um, a big issue and put the court in center stage in American politics. There are lots of federal programs that I guess maybe weren't necessarily envisioned in the Constitution, uh, you know, NASA, the CDC, would those things be in jeopardy? Absolutely. Um, those could all potentially be, um, you know, even the idea of paper money. Um, and, you know, if you, you even look and, uh, you know, James Madison thought the Constitution didn't allow the federal government to build roads and canals. Um, hmm. So it, it, that's not to say, and, and, you know, it's easy to be... <laughs> Um, to draw out these illogical conclusions from from these things. I, I don't think roads and, and bridges and the highway transportation budget are really uh, up on the chopping block. But yeah, certainly small programs within the executive branch that are unpopular wow. uh, would be. The EPA, bye-bye. <laughs> well, we'll have to see what unfolds. Unfortunately, we're about out of time here, Dan Richardson. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to head into uh, some CBS News at the top of the hour. We'll be back with one of our uh, one-on-one interviews with a CBS News correspondent, folks. Stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Thanks for staying with us into our second hour on this Tuesday morning, October the 13th, 2020. And uh, lots going on. As usual, we have the, uh, today it's the uh, continuation of a Senate confirmation hearing on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court by President Trump. And joining us to discuss all this is uh, Thane Rosenbaum of CBS News. Uh, Thane, thanks very much for uh, coming on the air with us this morning. Anytime, Dave. So uh, tell me your sense of uh, how this is going to go. It sounds like it's going to be, uh, is it, is it going to be just sort of a lot of, um, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, sound and fury signifying nothing because uh, she's a lock? She's definitely a lock. Uh, but the Democrats are think they're trying to make a message, send a message to America uh, that has, nothing, has less to do with Amy Coney Barrett and more to do with uh, uh, Joe Biden, because really their focus, as of yesterday and even today, I was just watching a little of Senator Feinstein's uh, questioning of the judge, 
they're focusing on the Obamacare. They're basically saying, look, you're, we will be uh, uh, elevating this woman to the Supreme Court, uh, and a week later she will be sitting on a case involving the dis- potential dismantling of Obamacare in the middle of a pandemic um, where people will lose their coverage for pre-existing conditions, and there'll be, uh, there'll be new caps on, on uh, you know, lifetime maximums uh, for health care, and children uh, will be thrown off their parents' insurance plan. Uh, and is that what you want? <laughs> uh, and that's, what they're, that's the case that they're making now to America, that this is what this woman is going to do. And frankly, if you watch what she was saying, she, you know, she's having none of that. You know, she's just saying, look, pre-existing conditions isn't even what this, issue, this case is going to even be about one week after I would be elevated to Supreme Court. So I, I just don't know where this is going to go, Dave, but this is the strategy that the Democrats have embraced. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me, though, that, that back in 2016, I remember I was still working for a mainstream uh, news organization, which uh, very guardly, uh, very closely guarded its uh, objectivity and et cetera, and, and so I was not expressing opinions publicly, but I was telling close uh, friends and family that what was really at stake in the 2016 election was not who was going to be president for the next four years. What was really at stake was uh, the uh, balance on the Supreme Court, and uh uh, and it really still seems to me as, as if in 2016 the, the, the Democrats, you know, Hillary Clinton and the whole Democratic Party were not highlighting that enough. Um, and, uh, you know, we see the result, uh, and here it is. So uh, is this a little bit of chickens coming home to roost, or what do you think? Well, you had some real good insights uh, three, four years ago, Dave, because even at that time, no one would have guessed that, uh, in a one four-year term, President Trump would have the potential to put one-third of the court with his own choices. I mean, it's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, it, nobody would have thought that. You know, he was saying, I have a list of approved judges that I think that I'm telling you right up front. These are the people from which I would pick. Uh, the Supreme Court's really important. All the federal, federal judiciary is important. Um, it played out perfectly for people who, like you, said... I think this election is really about the judiciary because no one would have imagined that in a four-year term, one-third of the court would change uh, with President uh, Trump essentially selecting from a list that was created by the Federalist Society that very much appealed to his core uh, evangelical base and red state mm-hmm. base. So, yeah, I think that it cannot be overstated whether President Trump is reelected or not whether you think he's the best president in the history of America or the worst president in the history of America, his legacy will live on for 40 years. And yep. we'll, always be, we'll always be talking about this, these Trump three, and if he gets a second term, he'll then have potential for more justices. But he has remade uh, the Supreme Court in exactly the way he promised it. It will definitely take a rightward shift. It'll solidify the conservative majority on the court if she is uh, confirmed, which it appears that Judge Barrett will be confirmed. And again, cannot be overstated the influence this will have on America. Uh, long after people don't talk about the word, the name Trump again, they'll be talking about Amy Coney Barrett because she's only 48 years old. And let's hope that she'll be healthy. If she's on the court, she'll be there for a very long time. 
Yeah. Um, one last thing for you, which is that the um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, in her testimony this morning was—I mean, she was asked about uh, her stance on Roe versus Wade, and, and she was basically insisting she would never tip her hand uh, on something like that uh, because uh, she wouldn't want uh, litigants to uh, have a sense of that they, they might be treated unfairly on, on either side. Uh, meanwhile, a, a news article came out late last week indicating that uh, there was a newspaper ad a few years back in which uh, which called uh, Roe versus Wade a barbaric decision. That was the word barbaric. She signed on to that ad and uh, as one of the supporters of that message. Uh, seems like she has tipped her hand, hasn't she? It's a good point. You've raised, you've raised two interesting questions. The first one... Um, has to do with, um, well, actually, let me get to the second one. The second one is the ad, right? So she mm-hmm. had, she had her name added to the advertisement and it did use those words. But she can reasonably take the position that what I wrote as a law professor, what I may have said in my private life, uh, has not, has no bearing on how I will rule as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, I've never been in this position before. Remember, uh, uh, former Attorney General for the United States, Michael Mukasey, during his confirmation hearing, this was during George W. Bush's um, uh, uh, tenure, was asked about his feelings about waterboarding. And he said, uh, Senator Lee from Vermont said, can you tell us right now you're opposed to waterboarding? And he said, I can't because I've never been in this position before. Uh, as, an inter- as the Attorney General of the United States and the CIA coming into my office with a dossier about someone and his, his terroristic background uh, and what he, he may or she may do. I just never been in that position. And she can plausibly say that, yes, I may have said all of these things in my private life, but that I does not mean that I don't understand the rule of law and that I don't understand that sorry decisis uh, guides my direction in my thinking and on the court. So, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it appears like she tipped her hand, but all judges have, have um, you know, said things, written things that don't necessarily reflect what they would do um, if they'd be on the Supreme Court. And remind me again, the first point was what, you, your first point, just so I can answer that. Well, I was just saying this morning she, she said it would be a really bad thing for her to tip her hand before. Oh, right, 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 uh, right, yep. right, right. Right. It, so it just seems much. like she has. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I guess yeah. now, now, can, now she can say, she, I was just going to say now, now she can say she's, she's through some magic doorway where all prior writings are to be ignored. But, uh, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, I guess if there's a, a majority of one party in the Senate that will go along with that, that's the way it goes. But, uh, I don't think but, you. you know, yeah, I, you know, let me just say, let me add one little anecdote to this, uh, which yeah. is that Justice Gorsuch surprised everyone. This is a, the, Trump's first appointment was Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. He, too, clerked on the Supreme Court, um, uh, I believe also for Scalia. Uh, I'm sure that at some point in his career, he may have said that I'm not sure that the LGBT community should receive the same kind of rights and work discrimination that's guaranteed in Title VI. But he was the one that wrote the majority opinion and surprised everyone uh, in expanding the protection for workplace discrimination to members of the LBGT community, surprised everyone, including President Trump. 
So he may have tipped his hand at some other point as a conservative that he may have said, look, I just, you know, I don't accept the fact that the LGBT community receives every single right that we've given to all Americans. Uh, he may have said that at some point, and look what he did. Justice Souter did that as well. There's always this presumption that many of these justices uh, will, will do the bidding of the presidents that appointed them, but they oftentimes break the heart of the president who appointed them by disappointing them profoundly. Many conservatives are now saying that about John Roberts, uh, the chief justice that he has now become the five-four swing vote, and he votes off, uh, too often with liberals. And I bet you he tipped his hand a lot before he came to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting thought there. I mean, I, I guess, and so you really just sort of have to trust that these folks who are getting on the U.S. Supreme Court will say, okay, my role is different now. I mean, you know, I've seen... Uh, I've seen defense attorneys become judges just on the in the state bar here in Vermont, where I've worked as a reporter for thirty plus years. Uh, and you know, as defense attorneys, they were vigorously arguing for all the pro-defense positions, and then they get to be a judge, and uh, they've got a different role. And sometimes they rule for the prosecution. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that, uh, that's a really that's a group. That's a, Dave, that's an actually excellent analogy. It happens all the time. Defense attorneys, by the way, it happens all the time. Or prose- prosecutors become judges. At, well, yeah, I was just going to say, or pro- prosecutors. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess it's <laughs> it's not unheard of for sure. In fact, it's heard of yeah. quite often. So, hey, yeah. uh, Thane Rosenbaum, I really appreciate you joining me this morning. It's great chatting with you. Let's do it again soon. Okay, anytime, Dave. Be well. Alrighty, Thane, Thane Rosenbaum of uh, CBS News. We're going to talk about uh, the job market in Vermont and what uh, what sorts of careers are looking promising these days. It's not all doom and gloom out there, even though. The unemployment uh, rate certainly is higher than normal, uh, largely due to the uh, coronavirus crisis still unfolding here in Vermont and elsewhere around the country. And uh, uh, wanted to bring on a couple of folks to uh, talk about uh, uh, an effort to to let people know that it's not all doom and gloom out there. There are jobs open. There will be jobs open in the coming years in Vermont. And uh, they have some suggestions for what some of those jobs are and what kinds of uh, career training you might want to get to prepare yourself for uh, what's available in the labor market upcoming. I want to introduce my two guests. Uh, Carolyn Weir is uh, executive director of the McClure Foundation, and uh, they are a, a philanthropic group here in Vermont, uh, but founded by the uh, former publishers of the Burlington Free Press, and uh, they have uh, done a lot of good works in the state over the years, and now we're getting involved in this effort here. Uh, also, uh, Matt uh, Barowitz uh, from the State Department of Labor has uh, joined in the effort to get the word out about uh, what is going on in Vermont's job market and, and uh, try to get people thinking about, well, maybe uh, that job I had before is gone because of the coronavirus crisis, but we are uh, going to have to move on, and here are some ideas. Uh, Carolyn and uh, Matthew, Matthew uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. And, uh, Carolyn, I'll start with you. Um, talk to me about the genesis of this idea of sort of coming up with this list. I, I, I know the, the effort that has been going on for a little while. That's right. I think we've been on the, the show to talk about this list in previous years. We initiated this project with the Vermont Department of Labor because we envision a Vermont or no promising job goes unfilled for lack of a qualified applicant, and we think... Vermonters should have easy access to reliable information about good jobs. 
and how to get them. Um, and I think at this time, with so many Vermonters out of work or thinking about changing career fields because of the pandemic, it's particularly important to be able to access information about good jobs and the types of career training programs that lead to them. And Matthew Barowitz from the Department of Labor brings up to date, what is Vermont's current unemployment rate and how does that compare to with what it was, say, in October of 2019? Yeah, good morning, Dave. Thank you so much for having us on the uh, the, the program this morning. I'll have to say I don't, uh, I'm don't. i unable to hear Carolyn, so I don't have the benefit of hearing her responses. So um, okay. if we uh, conflict, that'll be uh, on you to sort out. How about that, Dave? We're gonna we're gonna work on that. <laughs> anyway, uh, a little technical issue there, so, maybe. Um, um, the, the, Matt, I'll, and I and I can try to relay to you um, what uh, you know. If she's if she's saying stuff that I want you to respond to, I can obviously uh, uh, tell you what she said, and then and then get your great. your thoughts about it. But this is sort yeah. of a, a a question that originates, I guess, with me, which is just yeah. I wanted to find out a little bit about how bad is it, uh, or how good is it, or whatever. And so, uh, so do you have the current unemployment rate and compared yeah. to a year ago? Yeah, yeah. let's talk about that. Um, again, thanks for having us on the show. Very excited to be here. Uh, so the most recent data that we've released from the Vermont Department of Labor and cooperation with the Bureau of Labor Statistics is an unemployment rate of 4.8%, and that is for August 2020. Uh, compared to August of 2019, the unemployment rate then was 2.4%. So it is two times higher than it was last year, but uh, the data can be a little misleading. It is accurate in the way it is uh, reported and calculated, but there is certain phenomenon right now associated with COVID that makes this, diff- this data difficult to just interpret right out of hand, and that being to be declared unemployed by the federal government for the statistical definition, you have to actively be looking for work and willing to accept work if offered. Well, right now, uh, due to COVID, many states have suspended the requirement uh, that you have to be looking for work. Um, and some people, because of uh, child care, health care issues, cannot actually accept work. So we know that the number of unemployed, by the statistical definition that are being reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, do not reflect um, the actual economic realities because we have access to unemployment insurance claims data, which shows that there's nearly two or three times more people in the state of Vermont collecting benefits associated with unemployment and due to the COVID uh, pandemic um, that are not captured here by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So it's a definitional challenge right now, and we need to look beyond just the unemployment rate to understand the Vermont economy. So the the real level of unemployment state, uh, unemployment in the state sounds like it's significantly higher than the 4.8 would, uh, would uh, imply, right? Yes. Uh, One way to look at it is like if you think about a a glass half full or half empty, well, uh, the labor market is no different from a labor force perspective if there's either employed or unemployed. Well, that glass has gotten significantly smaller by about 30,000 people who used to be employed in the Vermont economy. So when we look at uh, August of last year, there was over 333,000 people employed in the Vermont economy. Uh, Now we're under 309,000, according to the same data that gives us the unemployment rate. So there's a gap there of, you know, about 24, 25,000 individuals that don't show up in the unemployment rate, potentially because they are, uh, they don't meet the statistical definition, but they might be, um, truly from a layperson's definition unemployed. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and so, um, 
I, I want to get to the good news in a moment, but I also just want to sort of give people a good picture of where we are on all the, all of this as well. And uh, um, and I'm wondering, uh, in terms of the folks who are unemployed, uh, people usually in this in this conversation talk about discouraged uh, workers who are basically not filing for unemployment anymore, um, and who uh, uh, basically. Uh, are just out there in the world or in the in the economy somewhere, and I don't know if we've lost track of them exactly or what what is happening. But is there a, a an additional sort of phenomenon out there of those folks, or is there any way to measure that and et cetera? Uh, yes, a great point, a good question. Uh, discouraged workers are someone who's given up looking for work because they believe there's no work out there for them. Um, and so it is a particular type of definition, and that population has not grown surprisingly. Um, so there's only about 800 people. That's the statistical estimate of how many people are technically discouraged workers in the state of Vermont. The last estimate we have, again, 800, which is a small number. And it indicates to me that people aren't uh, doing, uh, they're not, a, they're either indicating they're not available for work, which is part of being a discouraged worker, or um, they just might know that there's jobs out there, but they actually can't accept them because of a home situation, a health situation, a child care situation. There are many barriers to employment right now. Um, that might prevent someone from actually uh, looking or accepting work if offered. So it's it's not a discouraged worker situation. It's, again, this pandemic, which is a health concern that has just uh, plummeted uh, or has uh, thrust itself into our economic uh, world and caused a major disruption. Now, my, my recollection is that historically with unemployment, uh, you were you had you did have to meet uh, requirements. You uh, you applied for a certain number of jobs in the course of a week or a month, or and and you were you know actively uh, and you were definitely willing to take a job. And there was a much sort of a much much more of a push that uh, and the state was standing there basically telling the unemployed worker that uh, you know you're going to lose your benefits if you don't take these steps. Um, all of that has been on, been sort of suspended for this period. Is that correct? That is correct, and that is something that the commissioner is working actively with the governor and his administration to decide when is going to be the appropriate time to to change that. But from a uh, uh, from a, uh, a household and economic well-being standpoint, Vermont, like many other states in the nation, have suspended the work search requirement because of the health concerns associated with COVID. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there are some folks out there who might be uh, in a normal period able to work and feel comfortable, you know, going out to a work, workplace. But if they're, you know, in their, uh, you know, above 60 years old, they have some underlying health conditions or whatever, compromised immune system. I mean, there's thousands of people in Vermont who meet various aspects of that description. Uh, they might have a legitimate reason to say uh, they don't really want to venture out much. Is that is that a accurate estimate? Yes, uh, that's uh, very true. Uh, and I also add, you know, child care or uncertainty associated with schooling, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, variables in play that make um, that need to be solved, or you know, for each individual household, have an answer for before you know work can be considered. And I think that's the big impetus behind suspending the work search requirement to be eligible for unemployment insurance. We want people to have access to these benefits who need them, um, and not uh, be hung up in some sort of technicality associated with a work search requirement. But you know, that is being reviewed, as I said, um, as. The economy continues to show uh, signs of improvement, you know, because we were talking about household data and the unemployment rate. But when we actually go to the employer side of the equation and we're asking them how many jobs you have, we are seeing a steady climb of jobs that are being reported. 
uh, by employers, and I know the department is working with many employers who are trying to increase the count of filled jobs because there's many un, um, uh, open or available positions right now. And I think that really makes this important work uh, with that uh, we're partnering with the McClure Foundation so uh, put to the forefront because there are open opportunities out there. And for those people who uh, can and are willing to accept work that's offered and they can do those searches, it's important they know what the opportunities are in the state of Vermont. And I do want to talk about opportunities. We're going to take a brief break here, just a couple minutes. Uh, but be, one last question on the uh, sort of the unemployment front uh, and kind of the problem statement here to some extent. Uh, the um, up until up until the end of July, I think it was, uh, folks were getting a uh, the $600 federal bump in addition to their state unemployment every week. Has has any of that continued? I, I thought for a while there was talk of uh, a three or four hundred dollar weekly bump continuing, or is is that is that by the boards now, or what what, what is happening there? Um, yeah, that's a great question. There was a separate program uh, that was initiated, um, and I believe it is ongoing right now. It is actually uh, happening, um, where it is an additional um, uh, payment to, to people on unemployment insurance benefits. The program you were referring to, the $600 benefit, did expire in July, and um, there was a federal act as well as, I think, a, a local state act to provide some supplemental benefits to individuals who are filing uh, for a certain period of time based on availability of resources. And I believe that is actively going on right now with checks being cut and uh, applications being received. So um, that is something that is happening. I see. Okay. Um, and the um, and, and is that expected to continue into next year, or, or is that uh, is that going to be over by the end of the year, or what do we know about that? Um, I don't have all of the exact details on that, but my understanding is, is it is a short-term uh, program, and I think to be reinitiated, there would either have to be a federal act or if the state decides to pick it up when they resume at the state house in uh, January. All right. Uh, my, my guests are Carolyn Weir of the McClure Foundation and Matthew Barowitz of the uh, State Department of Labor, and uh, uh, we... Um, are going to talk more after our little bottom of the hour break here for a CBS Newsman and a, and a couple of uh, words from our sponsors. Um, Carolyn, I, I, I do promise to bring you back into the conversation here because I want to find out on the other side of the break. Or actually, maybe we have, we have time to uh, take a first crack at this question now, Carolyn. Uh, uh, a year ago, I remember the big conversation in Vermont was employers saying they couldn't find people. Uh, has that problem gotten worse during the coronavirus crisis? Oh, interesting. Well, I think given what we just heard from Matt, there are 30,000 fewer Vermonters who used to be employed and are no longer employed because of um, these labor market changes. And yeah, um, yeah so at the end of uh, after the break, I'm looking forward to chat more about. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Let's go to uh, CBS News a minute at the bottom of the hour here. We'll be back shortly, folks, continuing our conversation with Carolyn Weir of the McClure Foundation and Matthew Barowitz of the uh, Department of Labor. We'll be back shortly. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. 
Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guests are Carolyn Weir, Executive Director of the McClure Foundation, and Matthew Barowitz of the Vermont Department of Labor. And, uh, Carolyn, we were talking just before the break about this question I had of what's it looking like from the point of view of a, you know, personnel officer in a company looking for employees to fill the various jobs available. And you were saying that, uh, there, this problem that was described years ago, in recent years anyway, uh, about not being able to find enough folks uh, appears to have worsened somewhat in the coronavirus. Do I have that right? I think it's fair to say that there are many good jobs available and going unfilled right now. Looking at this data that we're here to talk about today, we can pretty confidently say that whether you're looking for work or want to change jobs, whether you're a current student or someone just looking to gain new skills, there are really there's diverse and good career opportunities available in Vermont. And um, I'm wondering if, if you can sort of tell us uh, what I, – I, I saw the list so I could look at it and read it off to folks, but I think it's always better to bring in the guests on questions like this. And wh- what are some of, the, some of the top jobs that are available in Vermont right now that you would recommend people consider? Oh, well, they range. There are over 60 occupations on – this list. Each of them is expected to pay over $22 per hour median wage and have at least 220 openings in the state over the next decade. And they represent almost every career field you can think of. We're talking about everything from telecommunications installers to accountants to licensed practical nurses and electricians to HR specialists. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm uh, and I'm curious to know uh, are are most of them would it be fair to say are most of them looking for sort of a STEM background in terms of schooling or are there uh, jobs out there which are uh, you know available to uh, I don't know English majors or whatever? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean the career fields represented in this list um, is truly diverse. We see jobs connected to manufacturing, uh, business-to-business services like finance and accounting, healthcare, education, the trades, um, truly you name it. And while many of the promising jobs on this list do require some form of college degree or beyond, many of the promising jobs can be accessed with short-term career training programs. And so that's why alongside this list of, this updated list of most promising jobs, the McClure Foundation has vetted and selected seven short-term career training programs we consider best bets for landing a promising job as a way to help Vermonters looking to gain new skills find the right fit for them because it can be overwhelming to navigate the hundreds of career training programs available. Yeah. Um, one thing interesting that I heard more than a year ago now, I believe, um, certainly before the coronavirus uh, pandemic hit, which was that I, I think the figure was only about 26% of jobs available in Vermont require a college degree. Does that, does that sound right to you? That sounds a little low to me, Dave, but I think um, you know one point that we make is that many of the promising jobs on this list that require a short-term career training program 
are one of the first steps in really clearly mapped out career pathways that often include higher paying jobs down the road with more education and training, um, some of mm-hmm. which can include uh, an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. So many of the seven best bet career training programs that we've identified as a part of this promotion do just that. They're, they're programs that um, lead to good paying jobs in under 18 months, but the cost of those programs and the credits obtained by those programs all count towards a degree later on if that's what someone chooses to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know some employers, particularly in healthcare, um, have programs where you can sort of work your way up a ladder of, of uh, you know, you sign on, let's say, as a licensed uh, nursing assistant, I think it's called LNA, and then you uh, take some classes and you can uh, get yourself uh, promoted to uh, become an LPN, a licensed practical nurse, which pays a little better and does require, I think that's a more of a two-year degree, if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but, and then of course the, uh, the registered nurse positions in Vermont, uh, that, you know, those are decent middle-class jobs and, uh, and right. you can actually work your way up to that without, you know, investing, without putting your, your family in deep debt for college education or whatever. Exactly. And there, I'm glad you brought up that example. Um, I was talking earlier this year with Amanda, who's a mom and licensed nurse assistant who works at Central Vermont Medical Center, um, who is currently earning, um, working in the field she loves, but also learning in the licensed practical nursing program through Vermont Tech with the support of her employer. So she's on her way to a really big wage increase. Licensed practical nurses are one of the 60-plus promising jobs on this list, and um, you're exactly right. It's part of a broader pathway that leads to registered nurse and even nurse practitioner down the road. Yeah, that's uh, it is kind of, it's really nice to know that there is a path like that because I, I hear, especially from young people sometimes, that uh, you know I don't want to put my parents deep in the hole, and I don't want to go deep in the hole myself to take out gigantic student loans, and so I'm going to skip the whole four-year college thing and and so on and so forth, and and uh, and then they feel pretty limited about what they can do. And I say, well, no, there. Are, if you if you really feel like college is kind of uh, financially daunting, there are other ways to go. Uh, another another thing you see young people do, and, and heaven knows Vermont, Vermonters need more uh, folks doing this, is uh, you mentioned the trades. Uh, you can get into an apprenticeship to become an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, uh, any number of these things. Uh, and uh, and and again, this is a this is a way you kind of earn while you learn, or learn while you earn, and uh, and get yourself into uh, into a job that ends up supporting a nice middle class lifestyle again. Exactly. You have just named two of the seven best bets <laughs> probably guess the rest programs of them. <laughs> that we have yeah. uh, identified as a part of this promotion, and it's, um, that statement I think holds true for young people. But also for adults, I'm thinking about this number Matt shared of 30,000 Vermonters who were employed last year, who are not employed right now, and thinking about what this pause for reflection um, might be causing them to think about. Um, you know, two or four years is a long time to commit to going back to college, but a short-term career training program, especially ones that allow for people to earn and learn at the same time, might fit into someone's life a little bit easier. So the seven programs that we've, uh, the McClure Foundation has identified as best bets for Vermonters in 2021 stood out to us because they're affordable, they're short, 
they're easily accessible no matter what part of the state you live in, and they reliably lead to good jobs on pathways with even higher pay down the road. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that all seven of the programs are offered by the Community College of Vermont or Vermont Tech, um, which, of course, are two colleges with a really strong track record of supporting Vermonters of all backgrounds, many of whom are parents and working adults. The other thing that uh, I think, uh, you know, I sometimes tell young folks, uh, uh, my kids and my friends of my kids and so on, to, to think about is um, choosing a career uh, which is allows you to, uh, to, to to kind of stay where you are if that's what you want to do, uh, and and again the n- nursing and the trades are two uh, which uh, are going to be around in Vermont for many years to come. Uh, the, the the problem historically with some manufacturing jobs is if the company pulls up stakes and decides to leave for Taiwan or something, you're uh, kind of out in the cold um, and. And you know that that is a consideration I would think a lot of folks want to think about when they when looking at a career change or or at, a, at entering a career is to say is this a job that is actually sustainable here in, in our in our economy for the foreseeable future? And that's part of why we look to Matt and his team at the at the State Department of Labor um, to help us understand this data because this is a part of long term occupational projections data that projects out to the best of. In our ability for the next 10 years. Manufacturing is an interesting example, and I'm sure Matt can tell us more. It's a, a career field in which the average worker is on the older side. So there are a lot of anticipated retirements in the coming years. So it still can be a really great bet for a young worker who likes to work with their hands. Um, and so the Certified Production Technician Program at CCV is the entry-level manufacturing program that the McClure Foundation is holding up. Um, as a part of this promotion. And um, the McClure Foundation is an affiliate of the Vermont Community Foundation. And as a part of its Vermont COVID-19 response fund, the Community Foundation is awarding $350,000 grants to help reduce tuition for these short-term career training programs next year and provide some new equipment to CCV and Vermont Tech to make sure that that training is accessible across the state. I would think that's a, that's a challenge for training programs to kind of keep equipment uh, current and, uh, the, you know, all the software up to date and that sort of stuff because you, you want people coming out of these programs ready to go onto the, onto the shop floor and, and get the job done from day one pretty much. And, uh, uh, I mean, is that an issue? Is that something people are really well, focused on? Accessibility is such an interesting question right now. Obviously, this pandemic has disrupted our lives and Vermont's economy and um, workforce challenges in all sorts of ways. One of the potentially unexpected um, implications of the pandemic is that a lot of education, as we all know, has shifted online, and that holds true for college systems as well. So most of the career training programs that um, we're holding up as as best bets going into 21 are currently offered online. So that makes these programs incredibly accessible for folks um, who live across the state, assuming that they have reliable Internet access, which we all know um, is a question in this day and age. And then, yes, there are, of course, some hands-on training associated with some of these programs, and that hands-on training requires good equipment. So some of the funding from the Community Foundation will help um, uh, 
uh, Vermont Tech open a new licensed practical nursing training facility at NVU Linden, and CCV will be able to purchase some new equipment that allows for hands-on training in its certified production technician program for manufacturing workers. Uh, refresh me, uh, if you could, Carolyn, on the uh, on the website. If folk, folks want to go and look at uh, some of this data here, uh, where are they going to find it? We're going to find it at www.mcclorevt.org slash pathways. And on that website, folks can learn more about these promising jobs. They can request free copies of a brochure listing the job. We're happy to mail as many or as few as folks would be interested um, in, uh, in reading. And they can learn about the seven peer training programs the McClure Foundation considers best bets for Vermonters in 2021. Uh, Matthew Berowitz, uh, Carolyn was mentioning a few minutes ago that in manufacturing, uh, there are companies which are, might be facing a, uh, a slew of a retirements in coming years and opening up uh, some of those jobs for new entrants. Uh, I've, I've heard similar things about, uh, say, the nursing profession and the, uh, and the trades, you know, the traditional plumbers and electricians. A lot of those folks are, are going to age out at some point in not too distant future. Is, is that your sense as well? Uh, yes, uh, that is true. Those are three industries, both healthcare, construction, and manufacturing, where the average worker profile is older than the average Vermonter. And we already know that Vermonters are uh, a little older than the average American. So these are going to present tremendous opportunities for uh, employment for people looking to go into those fields. And the other thing I would say in regards to your discussion about manufacturing is that COVID has really changed the way um, – uh, manufacturing operations have run and where uh, companies product and source their goods. And there is a lot of discussion that on-sourcing and reshoring could occur as a result of COVID so that people can better control their uh, input, uh, their, their control of their inputs to their products and services. So um, it is possible that this would uh, cause uh, more stability in the manufacturing industry going forward. That's really interesting. Uh, uh, just uh, an impetus uh, toward uh as you say, onshoring, I guess that means uh, companies which may have moved overseas years ago bringing back some or all of their operations, right? Correct. So, you know, because transportation has been really hampered by uh, COVID, uh, firms are looking to make sure that they have a guaranteed source for their necessary inputs for their products. And so we've seen and talked to many uh, manufacturing firms across Vermont that are really trying to hire as best they can at partnering with us to advertise their employment opportunities all across the state. And for people who may not have considered manufacturing in the past, you know, I've worked in the production industry myself, and, and uh, I can tell you it is very rewarding work, and it is not uh, like the movies make it out to be in the 1950s. It is a safe, clean, high-tech uh, place to work, and it can be uh, very flexible as it relates to scheduling. It's not always just a 9-to-5, depending on the, the firm. Yeah, um, if you were, if you Matthew were talking to, uh, I don't know, a relative or something, say, a, you know, a cousin's a kid who's getting out of school, out of school in uh, Pennsylvania or uh, Ohio or something, would you recommend that uh, the person consider moving to Vermont uh, in, 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 in part because of the open jobs here? Um, that's a great question, Dave. The first and foremost thing I always talk about, you want to make sure anyone who's going to relocate from uh, any other state understands that winter is a four-season state, uh, five-season depending on how you like to count spring. But if people yeah. enjoy that natural environment, they don't mind winter and a little bit of cold, Vermont is a tremendous place uh, for employment opportunities. 
as you mentioned, going into this pandemic, we had one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. Employers were tripping over themselves, trying to find talent and recruit people to their firms. And for many firms who have not missed a beat because of the COVID slowdown, they're in that same situation and perhaps have been uh, have increased demand due to the pandemic. So there are tremendous employment opportunities here in the state of Vermont. And I would encourage individuals to seriously consider relocating here or giving it a, a second look if they already lived here and thought that there weren't any opportunities here. I think that becomes too much of the message around here as we kind of sell bad news too frequently that there's quote-unquote no jobs in Vermont or no good employers, and that's frankly just not true. We have so many opportunities, so many high-tech, cutting-edge, new-age employers that are doing uh, the very best in their industry, and they're looking for talent today. One industry that is an exception right now, or I guess two, two maybe economists, two, hospitality and um, uh, and uh, restaurants, basically, uh, th- those are going to th- those those are still hurting and and uh, will remain so for a while. Is that true, or what do you think? That is uh, certainly the the sad story of what's happened with COVID because of the inability of people to move around freely. It has dramatically impacted our accommodation of food services and arts, recreation, um, and entertainment industries. You know, just looking at the industry itself, leisure and hospitality, it's down about 40% of its employment. Earlier this summer, it was down about 50%, meaning half of the jobs were gone um, as it relates to COVID. Um, and I know that we have seen some bumps recently as um, some of the travel restrictions or um, restrictions on businesses have been relaxed. So hotels have been able to open up a little bit more, and uh, that's helping. And we are certainly hoping for a good, positive winter season because we know that those are key employers. Some of those resorts and some of those ski mountains are key employers in some of the parts of the state. And those are the parts of the state that are really hurting right now. And that's why I think this work is so important for people who might be historically worked in student hospitality to maybe say, do I want to continue on that path or is now the time, especially with the generous funding opportunities that the McClure Foundation, the Vermont Community Foundation are making available try a new training opportunity to get different career exposure. And the Vermont Department of Labor is here to assist. We're doing all our services virtually and encourage people to reach out to the Vermont Department of Labor and talk to a career counselor, learn about these training programs, learn how you can capitalize on these opportunities that are going on right now. Well, it's a really important message, and I appreciate the two of you coming on the program this morning on the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV, FM, and AM, and sharing the message with our listeners. I think uh, it's good to have some some positive positivity out there as well as some realism. There are jobs out there, folks. You just might have to make some adjustments in your life to go get them. So there we go. Uh, Matthew Barowitz of the State Department of Labor, Carolyn Weir of the McClure Foundation, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you. Thanks, all right, we are uh, heading into the top of the hour, which means the close of today's show, uh, Dave Graham show on WDEV. And uh, I want you to all stay tuned for the governor's news conference. Uh, Governor Phil Scott and other top state officials talking about the state response to the coronavirus. Uh, they will be uh, probably getting on the air here just a little bit after 11. We go to some top of the hour news from CBS, as we do at the top of the hour here on WDEV. And uh, and then the governor and, uh, and uh, Health Commissioner Mark Levine, other top state officials, come on and uh, share the latest news about the COVID-19 crisis here in Vermont. Uh, we'll uh, be back tomorrow morning. Please join us then about 9 o'clock on WDEB FM and AM. And uh, meanwhile, have a good day, everybody.